Good. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Warden, for the uh, kind introduction. Um, it's always something of a relief for a speaker to get the introduction over with because uh, I recently had the experience of going to speak at a local historical society that I'd spoken to before, a few years before. Um, when I returned to speak, a very nice uh, lady got up to introduce me and said, uh, <coughs> we're delighted to have uh, Professor Hawkins back to speak to us. As, though, as those of you who heard him last time will remember, he was absolutely superfluous. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you, Warden. Um, okay, I want to do three things. Uh, the number three will figure prominently in this talk, as you realize as we go through. But three things I want to do. First of all, I want to suggest to you that uh, perhaps one can see two types of coalition in British politics if you look back over the last 200 years. The second thing I want to do is to uh, present to you what I describe as the three Hawkins rules about coalition government in British politics. And the final thing I want to do is to slaughter a sacred cow. As that promises to be, a, or sounds like a potentially rather messy business, I'll leave that till, till, till the end. Um, Against the backdrop of a violent thunderstorm in December 1852, Benjamin Disraeli declared to the House of Commons, this too I know, that England does not love coalitions. The extraordinary mercurial genius of Benjamin Disraeli, uh, once described as a self-made man who worshipped his creator, uh, continued, a coalition has before this been successful. But coalitions, though successful, have always found this, that their triumph has been brief. Towards the end of his life, the Liberal leader and Prime Minister Herbert Asquith wrote, nothing is so demoralizing to the tone of public life or so belittling to the stature of public men as the atmosphere of a coalition. So these are the negative connotations of the term coalition, suggesting a sacrifice or compromise of principles in order to secure power. The conservative, the great conservative prime minister of the 19th century, Lord Derby, of which has, there's also already been a reference to, uh, to a terrific two-volume biography, <laughs> uh, dubbed the uh, Rupert of Debate, uh, stated to Parliament in 1866, to a government of coalition, one understands a government of men of different parties in which each, to a greater or lesser extent, sacrifices his individual opinions for the purpose of obtaining united political strength. We all know that it is exceedingly repugnant to an Englishman to sacrifice his private opinions for expediency. The word coalition, the etymology of coalition, is, is, is interesting. It enters uh, English usage in the 17th century in a religious context, first of all, denoting the coming together or the joining of parts or coalescence, as in God and humanity by coalition, becoming one nature in Christ. By the 17th century, later in the 17th century, it was used in scientific uh, discourse to describe uh, coalition in one body or mass. And it's in the 18th century that it becomes a political term, denoting the combining of distinct parties, 
usually without incorporation into one body, and some of the negative connotations of the word begin to emerge. During the 19th century, the term coalition was more often used by hostile opponents to decry ministerial arrangements. And in, certainly in the early decades of the 19th century, governments which to us might look like coalitions uh, preferred to describe themselves as broadly based or, in 18th century terminology, broad-bottomed governments. Uh, meaning the coming together of uh, different politicians in the national interest and in support of the monarch. So if you think of uh, William Pitt the Younger, or of uh, Lord Liverpool, uh, George Canning, or likewise Lord Grey and Grey's Ministry of 1830-34, they did not describe themselves as coalitions, but saw themselves more, as I say, as broad-based or broad-bottomed administrations, uh, ruling in the national interest. This resonated in certain interesting ways on into the 20th century, when Ramsay MacDonald in 1931 formed a coalition government, but he described it, and it was described as a national government, not a coalition, bringing Labour, Conservative, Liberal politicians together at a moment of severe economic crisis. And Punch in 1931 depicted Ramsay MacDonald as the master chemist blending together the elements of labor, liberalism, and conservatism into a new political compound. Um, rather less flattering was Churchill's description in the House of uh, Commons in 1931 of Ramsay MacDonald as the boneless wonder. Th this is an election poster for the national government in 1931, capturing the spirit of what was presented as a national team coming together at a moment of crisis and bringing all together behind the national interest. This was interesting in part because of the relatively recent, in 1931, uh, often lurid and sometimes rather tawdry experience of the Lloyd George Coalition as it was explicitly called, uh, both in the second half of the First World War and in the years immediately after 1918. Extraordinary politician, the Wizard of Wales, um, and uh, a man who did much to shape British politics in the very end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. But his coalition government did little to displace the negative connotations of coalition government. In 1922, the Daily Mail, if one wishes to quote the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail talked of the poison of coalition. Um, and one critic uh, of Lloyd George said that uh, he couldn't see a belt without hitting below it. <laughs> so, Coalitions, self-avowed coalitions, come into existence in a variety of circumstances. But as I say, I want to suggest to you that one can perhaps discern two types of coalition government. There are those coalitions which are formed in the context of a national emergency, such as war. And in these circumstances, they're seen as a temporary expedient in dire times. 
Such are the Asquith, the Lloyd George coalitions of World War I, Churchill's government, his coalition during the Second World War from 1940, and I think Macdonald's national government of 1931 is another example of this. So that's the first kind of coalition I think you can see. But there is a second kind of coalition I think that one can point to as well. And this is a coalition formed on occasions which portend or anticipate or help to bring about a fusion or realignment of political parties. They're marking a process, as I say, of party realignment. And here, temporary arrangements cast a far longer shadow. Examples of this kind of coalition government are the Aberdeen Coalition of 1852 to 1855, and Lord Salisbury's coalition government of 1895. Um, this is a painting, my apologies for the, for the poor reproduction, of the Aberdeen coalition, 1852-1855. Uh, Lord Aberdeen is sitting there in the middle, just to the left of the crease. Um, uh, and the uh, minister pointing at the map is Lord Palmerston in the rather unusual office of Home Secretary in the Aberdeen uh, Coalition, who privately described Aberdeen as an example of antiquated imbecility. Um, and on the left here in the chair is, of course, the uh, great Chancellor of the Exchequer of the Aberdeen Coalition, William Gladstone. And his budget of 1853 was regarded as a landmark moment in the establishment of fiscal economic orthodoxies in the 19th century. Interestingly, Gladstone did not refer to the Abba coalition as a coalition, avoided that word. He preferred to describe it as a mixed government and said that the formation of a mixed government was only warranted when ministers had a most thorough confidence in the honour, integrity and fidelity of each other, when they were in agreement on all the great questions of the day, and when a great and palpable, uh, uh, palpable emergency of state called for it. Gladstone always set the moral bar very high. Um, it reminds me of Disraeli's comment about Gladstone that he didn't mind Gladstone having the ace of trumps up his sleeve. What really bothered him was Gladstone's absolute conviction that it was God who had put it there. <laughs> um, sorry, one more wonderful Disraeli aphorism. Somebody once asked him uh, what the difference was between a disaster and a catastrophe. And uh, Disraeli replied, if Gladstone fell into the River Thames, that would be a disaster. Somebody pulled him out again. That would be a catastrophe. <laughs> um, interestingly, the Aberdeen Coalition, formed in peacetime, was brought down by war. Uh, most of the other examples of coalitions in that case of national emergency are formed in the event of, of war. But, of course, it was the graphic reports in the Times uh, by their man in the Crimea, W.H. Russell, uh, which discredited the Aberdeen Coalition as a supposed distillation of talent. 
But the true significance of the Aberdeen Coalition is that it anticipated the coming together, the coalescence of those elements which came to form the Liberal Party in, 19, in 1859. And as I say, is an interesting example of my second kind of coalition, foreshadowing, anticipating, portending fundamental party realignment. And I think the 1895 government of Lord Salisbury is another interesting example. In this case, his government was a uh, coalition of conservatives and liberal unionists, which led to the formation of the Conservative Unionist Party uh, in the 1890s. Um, and you could also argue that the Lloyd George coalition in 1918 and after marked a process of party realignment, in this case the demise of the Liberal Party during the 1920s and the 1930s as a major force in government. Let me fast forward then. <laughs> Let me fast forward to the events of May 2010 when the first coalition government of the 21st century was formed, the Cameron-Clegg Alliance. Uh, we remember these, the announcement in the uh, Downing Street Rose Garden here. Some of us may remember the uh, private eye cover from, um, from, that, uh, from that moment. What does the, uh, what does the history of peacetime coalitions um, suggest to us about the Cameron-Clegg uh, coalition over the last five years? What warnings does history offer? Okay, it's at this point I get to my second major uh, thing I want to talk about, which are the three Hawkins rules. Memorizing, applying these rules are essential to exam success at the end of this lecture. Hawkins rule number one, that the prospect of the next election hangs over all coalitions like the sword of Damocles, that uh, ministers having to work together are aware and become increasingly aware of the fact that at some point, approaching increasingly closer, they will have to go to the electorate and campaign, either together or separately, on policies which they have jointly uh, brought into place. Hawkins rule number two, exiting from coalitions is far harder than entering into them. It's rather like marriage perhaps where the elation of the nuptial celebrations at the beginning uh, tend to give way to the bitterness and recrimination of divorce <laughs> as the next uh, election approaches. Hawkins rule number three, that the dynamics of coalitions operate very uh, differently at different levels, as in government or in parliament or in the constituencies. And the further you move from the centre of ministerial power, the harder it is to maintain harmonious coalition relation, uh, relations. This is the warning. Retribution seeps in from the grassroots. It's in the constituencies and the electorate that harmonious coalition relations are far harder to maintain. 
These, I'd suggest to you, are perhaps three of the historical warnings that uh, apply to the uh, Clegg, or have applied to the Cameron-Clegg coalition over the last five years. And there are three, yet again another three, things I would point out uh, which are interesting and perhaps rather distinctive about the Cameron-Clegg coalition. Unlike the peacetime coalitions of 1895, 1918, and 1931, which were formed before general elections, the uh, coalition of May 2010 was formed after an election. It was not endorsed by the electorate. Uh, commentators and voters were guessing when they were going to the polls in May 2010 as to what sort of coalition government would result if there was a Hun parliament. And uh, many guessed wrong. You know, the, the Guardian, for example, was recommending a Liberal Democrat vote so as to create a progressive coalition of the left in May uh, 2010. So in that sense, the Cameron Clegg coalition has lacked the legitimacy, if you like, of an electoral mandate, which uh, could be said of the previous uh, peacetime coalitions I mentioned. The coalition did not issue from party manifestos, but from intense four-day private negotiation, which I'm sure we all remember, over a weekend. Second point I would make. <clears throat> that the 2010 coalition uh, was the only peacetime coalition to result from a hung parliament. In 1895, 1918, 1931, the Conservatives, had they wished to, could have governed without the support of any other uh, party. In 2010, this was not the case. In this sense, it is a coalition of necessity. This is... Uh, one comment on the uh, result, <clears throat> the aftermath of the uh, May 2010 election with everyone looking bruised, particularly, of course, Gordon Brown. Yes, as I say, <clears throat> a coalition of political necessity. Um, a third point I would make is that... Looking back at 1895, 1918, 1931, it was a section of the Liberal Party that joined with the Conservatives in government. In May 2010, it was the Liberal Democrat Party as a whole which joined the Conservatives in coalition. And this raised, of course, the political stakes for the Liberal Democrats considerably. In 1895, 1918, 1931, coalition was the outcome of liberal division. But in 2010, the Liberal Democrats, as a united party, entered coalition. And for these reasons, I think uh, the historical warnings, which I've suggested to you, bear down on the Liberal Democratic Party as a whole all the more gravely. Uh, and one thinks of the political trophies that the Liberal Democrats looked to uh, acquire from coalition government in 2010, electoral reform, PR, referendum on that, 
uh, was not uh, agreed. Reform of the House of Lords, and we could talk about House of Lords reform for a long time, uh, and I can be very easily led into that, that, that path, but uh, that still continues. You know, the train left the station in the first years of the Blair government. The hereditary chamber, which of course it's very hard to think of a compelling argument for at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. But what I found very hard to forgive is that the hereditary chamber was done away with without a clear idea of what it was going to be replaced with. The train left the station and we didn't know the destination. And that has led, I think, to a deadlock over the uh, last 17 years or more. And reform of public services. One can have a long debate about that. There's another trophy that the Liberal Democrats were looking to win from joining in a coalition with the Conservatives. So, going back to my two types of coalition, what is the Cameron Clegg coalition? Is it a temporary expedient of a moment of dire national emergency? Or is it an arrangement anticipating portending a realignment of parties? In some ways, it started out as the first, the great economic crisis, the financial crisis following on from 2008, um, and parties coming together in the national interest. My suggestion to you, though, that as time has gone on, it begins to look increasingly like an example of the latter, second type of coalition, where it is suggesting or leading to some very fundamental and perhaps profound shifts in British politics and the uh, British party system. Um, in particular, the reasons I say this, I think if, let me focus again for a moment on the Liberal Democrats and think of Liberal Democratic support in 2010 and the effect of coalition uh, on them. You know, there were three or perhaps four uh, sections, key sections of Liberal Democratic support in 2010. The party faithful, who looked at the party, I think largely as a radical alternative to the uh, rather more staid, uh, major parties, disaffected Labour voters who moved towards the centre, and a small number of disaffected Conservative voters hoping for moderate centrist government. The fourth group, of course, were all the uh, student votes that went to the Liberal Democrats with their promise of doing away with tuition fees. Um, and all those elements, I think, have become very disillusioned. Uh, over, the, over the last uh, five years. Uh, the Conservatives have uh, also, of course, had their difficulties and difficulties in coalition government, uh, primarily, of course, to do with the rise of uh, UKIP hemorrhaging of uh, some party support and also some Labour support, which I think has already shifted, but the continuing hemorrhaging of uh, Conservative support to some degree uh, to UKIP and then the Labour Party, which uh, I think is still looking around for issues and uh, to define itself. I suppose you could describe where we are now, coming up to May 2015, as the perfect storm. Liberal Democratic Party, uh, who is facing, I think, 
significant loss of support and parliamentary presence. A Conservative Party which uh, in some ways wishes to appear moderate and centrist but also has to placate its uh, more extreme support and both <coughs> respond to yet keep its distance from UKIP and a Labour Party which is seeing the rise of the Scottish National Party in Scotland undermining uh, a very significant historically portion of Labour support and Labour votes. And all of that has come together. And you, as I say, you could characterise that as, as the perfect storm. Okay, let me move on to this sacred cow, which I am now about to, to slaughter. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the discussion uh, about coalition government and a lot of the debate, certainly in 2010, was, my gosh, isn't this unusual? Isn't this something almost unprecedented in British politics and et cetera, et cetera? I hope my historical survey, certainly over the last 200 years, has suggested to you that it's certainly not unprecedented that we have seen a good number of coalition governments of various kinds in modern British politics. But even more importantly, um, I think a lot of that comment was based on the idea that British politics naturally conforms to a two-party model. That somehow there are uh, natural uh, features, tendencies in British society, British politics, which lead towards it being the natural model or paradigm as to how politics operates. We have a two-party system and parties alternate in government on the basis of a commons majority. That is the sacred cow which I would now like to slaughter. Um, and the reason I want to slaughter it is this, and this I will uh, suggest to you, that that idea of British politics being in its natural form two-party is coincidental and not accidentally connected with, I would suggest, the uh, emergence of political science as an academic discipline in British universities from the 1950s on. If you look at the uh, Political Studies Association, founded in 1950, the journal Br uh, Political Studies, launched in 1953, it was natural for political scientists with the establishment of political science, as I say, as uh, an academic discipline with faculty and departments, to look for models and paradigms, the sorts of uh, excellent things that social scientists should do. Um, and in, in the early 1950s, it seemed obvious and natural that the model of modern British party politics was two parties. If we look at the 1951 election, for example, so exactly at the time when this, I want to suggest to you, model paradigm was being constructed, 1951, general election, it sounds like a, I mean, this is a different world, 82% voter turnout, and of those who voted, 97% voted either Conservative or Labour. 
49% uh, of those who voted voted Labour, 48% Conservative. And if you want a measure of just how far we've come from then, the Conservatives won 48.6% of the vote in Scotland. Um, it was natural in those circumstances, uh, as I say, to uh, think of British policy politics as being historically uh, a two-party system. And various explanations were for this were suggested, none of which I've ever found persuasive. Um, and in no particular order, it's been suggested, for example, that there is an inherent duality in the uh, English temperament or character, which is represented by these two major parties. It's been suggested that the physical layout of the House of Commons, divided into two sides, facing each other, produces a clear binary two-party politics with the implication, presumably, that if the House of Commons had been built differently, we'd have a different party political system. Um, an interesting suggestion, uh, which is, has some elements of, of uh, use in it, I think, is that it's the product of a deep underlying tension in British society and politics between the church and chapel. Um, uh, another suggestion which I have less time for is that the uh, English are inherently sport-loving people and they like the idea of a contest between two teams, one of which uh, wins. Another suggestion has been that the adversarial character of the English legal system has been a deep influence to produce a two-party model. None of these I find um, wholly convincing. And what I would suggest to you, that if you look back over modern British politics, the periods of clear two-party government with a single party commanding a majority in the House of Commons are relatively short and fairly specific. I would suggest, as a historian, it's the period from 1859 to 1876, 1880, you could argue you had a clear two-party system. And from 1945 uh, through to mm, 1980s, something like that, when uh, the clear two-party system, post-war system began to, to break down. Outside those two periods, what we see is, to varying degrees, multi party systems operating. If you look at the 1830s, the 1840s, you see Whigs, radicals, um, uh, conservatives, um, and uh, liberals contending for power. If you look from the 1870s, the 1880s on, you have the arrival of the Irish Home Rule Party during the 1870s. 1886, the Liberal Party splits. In 1890, the uh, Irish Nationalist Party splits so that by the 1890s, you've actually got a five-party system operating, which, of course, is joined by the Labour Representation Committee, renaming itself the Labour Party in 1906. And indeed, if you look at the period from 1885 uh, through to 1945, of that 60-year period, there are only 10 years when you have a single party in government commanding a commons majority. 
The rest of the time, you have a minority governments or coalition governments. So in the taking uh, famous Radio 4 programme, The Long View, uh, I would suggest that the hand-wringing over the emergence of a coalition government in 2010 was less warranted if you do take the long view that for a great deal of the last 200 years there have been minority coalition governments or certainly far from a clear two-party system. Where does that leave us now? Where does that leave us on this you know, coming up, what, 75 days' time, I think, on the 7th of May? Um, well, sorry, the first word that comes into my mind is interesting, uh, which is not helpful. Um, extraordinary. Uh, you know, in some ways, I suppose, we can anticipate we're going to have uh, what you might characterize as 360 by-elections on, uh, on, on the 7th of May. Um, if my analysis is correct... Uh, we are moving into another period, I think, of party political realignment and reshaping, uh, similar to processes that we'd seen before over the last uh, 200 years. Um, and if you asked me as a historian, uh, what do I think is going to happen on the 7th of May, I would immediately pull out my professional historian carrying card and say, historians don't engage in prediction and forecasting, we just look at what's going on, which is an unhelpful response, perhaps. But if you wish to ask, uh, I will lay my uh, historian's card aside and, in an act of uh, recklessness, predict some numbers for the 7th of May which, if you wish, you can write down and come back and wave at me <laughs> on the 8th of May as to where we are. So, thank you very much indeed for your attention, and I'd uh, be delighted to uh, entertain any, any questions. <laughs>